0: Well, good morning, you guys. For those of y'all who may not know me, my name is Trey Corey. I am the Southwood College pastor, and so it is a joy to get to pop over here to Anderson and get to be with you guys this morning. I kind of want to start off this morning and ask you guys one simple question, and that's this. Have you ever thought about what you'd look like when you're old? Have you ever thought about, in a sense, in 20 years from now, in a, when you get to the golden years of your life, what are you going to look like? Are you going to have hair still, men? What's your waistline going to be like? Uh, Now that I'm in my 30s and metabolism has started to slow down, those are the questions I'm asking, all right? Um, In fact, my dad and I have a raging debate as to whether I, like him, will be bald when I get older. Uh, Now that I'm in my 30s and my hair is still as thick as turf, I'm pretty confident that I'm not losing my hair, all right? (laughs) Combs have have gotten lost in this kind of hair, all right? Um, but in regards, there's actually website technologies now and, and websites that you can actually find out what you're going to look like in 20 years, all right? So I kind of got curious this week and I put myself up in a website called in20years.com. This is a picture of me apparently in 20 years, all right? I said this last summer, but let me get it out of the way again. I am not related to Joel Osteen, all right? I know <laughs> 20 years forward, the resemblance gets even more. I realize that, but let me kind of remove that yet, yet again, all right? Um, but as fun as it is to do your picture... It's even more fun to do someone else's, like, for example, Brian Fisher. <laughs> I, I've known Brian and been discipled by Brian for, and now walked with him for about 10 years. And I will tell you, in 10 years, he's a little bit like the Heisman Trophy pose. He's really hard to get a joke pulled on, okay? But for the first time, I finally got him, all right? I like this. Uh, As fun as it is to do someone that's not yourself, let me, men, encourage you, don't do your wives, all right? If you try to think in your curiosity this afternoon, what is my wife going to look like in 20 years, don't show her, all right? Don't do it. Not that I've done it from experience, but just in anticipation and intuition, let me tell you that, all right? But my favorite of the pictures I looked at was this. It was Buck Anderson, all right? Why is Buck so funny? I think the reason why Buck is so funny to me is it's not that much different than he looks now. If Buck wants to know what he's going to look like when he's old, he just looks in the mirror, right? Now, I love Buck, and I love his wisdom, and I love what he's brought to our church and our staff. But in many regards, what I want to do for you guys this morning is not answer the question, what are you going to look like in 20 years? But I want to begin to prompt for you the question of this one. Who are you going to be in the golden years of your life? That as you continue to walk with the Lord, as you continue to round, and eventually one day come to the finish lap, who do you hope to be? What we're going to look at this morning as we look at the life of Caleb in Joshua chapter 14 is we're going to get a man at the golden years of his life. We're going to see a man who's getting ready to cross the finish line. And what we're going to get is a portrait of a man that has just blown me away. For whatever reason, even through seminary and even through reading the Bible, for whatever reason, I've never landed on Caleb until this year. For me, it's probably been one of the newest discoveries and, and a guy that I've just fallen in love with. In fact, Caleb has even kind of now moved into the names of uh, Lord Willing. If we were ever to have a boy, Caleb might be one of the ones in the mix. I, I just kind of got captured by this guy's story. And in particular, by the way that he's going to finish his life at the end. In the golden years of his life. So if you will turn to Joshua chapter 14 with me this morning. We're going to start out in verse 6. And what we're going to do is eventually we're going to get to a picture of Caleb at 85 years old at the finish line. But before we do that, a little bit like loss, what we're going to get is a flashback, all right? Verses 6 to 9 are going to, in a sense, flashback. And as Caleb's going to be talking here in a minute with Joshua, Caleb's going to remind Joshua where he began. You're going to get a picture of some of Caleb's first formative big moments with the Lord and walking with the Lord. Look with me, verses 6 to 9. And in particular, what you're going to see is that Caleb is not just going to finish well. But he's going to begin well. It's going to be no coincidence that he's going to finish well because his beginning was one of utter faithfulness. Look at me, verses 6 to 9. We find, Then the sons of Judah drew near to Joshua and Gilgal. And Caleb the son of Jephunneh the Kizanite said to him, You know the word which the Lord spoke to Moses, the man of God, concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. I was 40 years old when Moses the servant of the Lord sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land, and I brought word back to him as it was in my heart. Nevertheless, the brethren who went up with me made the heart of the people melt with fear. But I follow the Lord my God fully. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land on which your foot has trodden will be an inheritance to you and to your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God fully. What you see from to 69 in this flashback is Caleb began faithfully. We're going to get a picture here in a little bit of Caleb at 85. But before we get there, he's going to flashback and show you how in a sense, he began He began in one of the most pivotal moments in utter faithfulness, and he came through with flying colors. Caleb was a man who believed God wholeheartedly and obeyed God fully. He didn't obey God partially, but he came through with flying colors, and he completely trusted the Lord. In Joshua 14, verses 6 to 9, Caleb, as he's talking with Joshua, is recounting back to an episode in Numbers 13. If you know the incident, remember, Moses sends out 12 spies to spy out the land that God had promised that he was going to provide to the nation of Israel. The 12 spies went out, hearing that God would provide the land to them, that it was a good land. And those 12 spies go out. Joshua and Caleb come back, and they report back that, yes, the land is good. It's exceedingly good and fruitful. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And not only is it a good land, but they were confident, just as God had promised, that he would provide the inhabitants into their hands. That they could conquer the nation. They could conquer the giants, even in the land. Unfortunately, the other 10 spies came back as well, and they had a completely different report, if you remember. Remember? Those 10 spies says, you know, the land isn't that good. And in fact, if we go in, we're going to be killed and decimated by these giants in the land. Surely we should not go in. And since they don't go in, they end up wandering in the desert for 38 years. And eventually, as we open the book of Joshua, we get a new generation that has arisen under Joshua and Caleb's leadership. And they've entered the land and they've begun to conquer the land. Caleb began faithfully. And interesting enough, what you're going to get is this story of Caleb right here in the middle of the book of Joshua. And it comes not here in the middle of the book of Joshua by coincidence, but it gets put right here at a pivot in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapters 1 to 13 recount the seven years of Israel's conquering the land within the borders that they've been promised. As they've entered in and they've been conquering foes, they've been conquering enemies, and they've, in a sense, really laid waste and really captured most of the land. You find in Genesis chapter 11 this. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the divisions by their tribes. Thus the land had rest from war. Israel had accomplished much in seven years. They had entered the land by faith. This new generation had arisen up. And they, in faith, by the power of the Spirit and the Lord, as they moved in the armies of the Lord, they had conquered the nations and the inhabitants of the land. So much so that they could say that, for the most part, they've done a lot. Joshua chapter 11. Interestingly enough, though, as you look at Joshua chapter 14, the book begins to turn and look at Joshua chapter 14. Verse 1. Now these are the territories which the sons of Israel inherited in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the households of the tribes of the sons of Israel apportioned to them for an inheritance. Verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel did just as the Lord had commanded Moses and they divided the land. What's happening? Joshua chapter 14. The book is beginning to pivot and what we're going to have happening in 14 and on in the book of Joshua is that Israel has accomplished much. And at this point, moving forward, the leadership of the nation is going to divide up all the land and begin to give it to each tribe within the nation of Israel. And the duty and the task of each tribe then is to go into that land and finish the task and drive the rest of the inhabitants out of the land. They had accomplished much and yet much was still to be done. And so the story of Caleb gets put right here in the book of Joshua. Why? gets put here right in the book of Joshua, right here, because Caleb is going to be a prototype for what it looks like and what's going to be necessary for them to finish the task. Caleb, just like the nation of Israel, had begun faithfully, and yet much was still to be accomplished. In fact, we find in Exodus chapter 23 that this task that was to be completed was not going to be an immediate quick task whatsoever. Exodus chapter 3, I will not drive them out before you, the inhabitants of the land, in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. notice, God's going to tell the nation of Israel that as they come in the land, as they obey God, their obedience won't bring immediate fulfillment to all that he has in store. They're going to continue to have to obey and walk with God and continue to wait on God to see all that he's promised brought to fulfillment. What you're going to see in particular is that Caleb is going to begin not just faithfully, but he's going to wait patiently. In particular, I think Caleb is going to show us that the spiritual life is a lot like a round of golf. No one wins golf games from the tee box. You may have a great drive, but it's not how you drive, it's how you arrive. What matters in the game of golf is not what you can do from the tee box, but what you can do in the fairway and at the putting course as well. It's not how you drive, it's how you have an iron game, it's how you can chip, and it's how you can putt. So great beginnings in the game of golf never guarantee great finishes. And the same is true in the spiritual life we are going to see from Caleb is he's going to have a great beginning, but that great beginning is going to have to continue on because Caleb is a man who's going to have to wait for a long time. So Caleb is going to not just begin faithfully, he's going to wait patiently. Verses 10 to 11, look with me real quick. Now behold, the Lord has let me live just as he spoke these 45 years from the time that the Lord spoke this word to Moses when Israel walked in the wilderness. And now behold, I'm 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day Moses sent at me as my strength was in. So my strength is now for war and for going out and coming in. I love the story here of Caleb. He's 85 years old and he's kept himself physically fit. I don't know what he's doing as he's wandering around the, in the desert. I don't know how he's pumping iron or what he's doing push-ups. I don't know how he's keeping himself fit. But this is a man who's kept himself fit physically. But it's not just physical. He's kept himself fit spiritually as well. He continues to trust that God is going to provide to him the promises that he gave him and that he recounts in verse 9. God had told him that he would have an inheritance in the land, that he'd get to experience it. And he's waited now for 45 years. Apparently he waits patiently, but he waits particularly for a long time. He waits 38 years as he wanders in the desert. He waits another seven years as the nation of Israel is conquering in the land. He's waited 45 years. A really long time. Even more stunning to me is he waits not just for a long time, but he waits for no fault of his own. In particular, as I think about if you've ever been on a road trip and you missed your turn and you realize 30 minutes later you missed your turn on a highway. If you as a driver, it's your fault, you get pretty frustrated, right? But what happens when it's the person in shotgun who's been navigating you? You're probably a little more frustrated, right? Because when you're waiting, it's difficult to wait. But when you're waiting because someone else messed up, it's even harder. Caleb is waiting for 45 years because someone else messed up. The nation that preceded him messed up. They didn't believe the Lord's promises. And so he's wandered for 38 years. And he's wandered and been conquering for seven years. And the task is not yet done. He's not yet seen a fulfillment of the promises of God. Yet he waits patiently. In fact, I thought about the fact that in many regards, you and I have a really difficult time waiting. And in fact, I think the only industry that in some regards has embraced waiting are doctors, all right? So for whatever doctors are in here, I don't mean to offend you, but it seems like the medical profession are the only ones that have embraced and causing waiting, all right? So you go into a room that's designated a waiting room, right? You wait in there for a good half hour, then you get brought into an examination room where you wait a little longer, right? And the doctors don't seem to be too apologetic when they finally come and they diagnose you. And to steal a bit from Seinfeld, that's interesting is some of those doctors will have you wait pantless, and a horrible looking gown. And by the time they come in and all your anger that you've been waiting for an hour, there's no way you pantless in a gown are going to argue with someone with diplomas on the wall, right? There's no way. But for whatever reason, you and I have a hard time waiting, especially when it's someone else's fault. Caleb, though, is going to wait not just for a long time. He's going to wait even when someone else calls it. And he waits so well. He continues to trust God and he continues to believe God and continues to not doubt his goodness whatsoever. He even seems patient with the people of God, and he's been waiting, and he's been waiting, and he's been waiting. And if that didn't frustrate him with the person and the promises and the purpose of God, even more, what fascinates me about Caleb is he gets passed over. Notice and remember, who was it that entered the promised land? And who were the two spies that had a good report? Joshua and Caleb. But who does God choose to lead the nation? Joshua. Joshua. Did Caleb not believe? Did Caleb not obey? Apparently, we don't get that sense. But for whatever reason, God in his sovereignty chose Joshua to lead. And what happens to Caleb? Caleb becomes the best supporting actor you can imagine. He becomes Robin to Batman. He becomes Dwight Schrute to Michael Scott, right? He is second in command. He's in the wings. He's overlooked and he's in the shadows. He's not the one that's put forward. And yet he continues to wait on God and continues to take from God whatever God will give and whenever God wants to give it. Caleb waits so well. But he waits not just for a long time, and he waits not just for no fault of his own, but he waits for a purpose. And he waits with a purpose. Typically, as you and I wait, we will do anything we can to kill and waste time just so that it will go by faster. But Caleb has to kill 45 years, and he kills it really well by keeping himself physically ready and spiritually ready because when finally the door opens and he has an opportunity, he's going to emerge through for war. He's going to be in the golden years of his life. And what I love about Caleb is at this point, He's begun faithfully. He's waited patiently. And what you're going to see in verse 12 is that he is going to end ambitiously. Look with me, verse 12. Now give me this hill country about which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day that Anakim were there. With great fortified cities, perhaps the Lord will be with me. And I will drive them out as the Lord has spoken. Caleb comes here and he ends absolutely ambitiously. At this point in time, at 85 years old, Caleb in the golden years of his life should have been looking for the golden corral and he should have been looking for the golf course. All right, Instead, he's going to be looking for a fight and he's going to pick the biggest, baddest dude in the room. Caleb, if, honestly, if it were me and I were Caleb and I would have had the track record Caleb had, waiting 38 years in faith, trusting God, obeying, then waiting patiently and then coming in and conquering for seven years. At this point in time, at 85 years old, if I were Caleb, I would have been looking for a nice, cushy, air-conditioned consultation job, right? Let me consult the young whippersnappers as they go out and finish the task. Let me have a nice desk job. Not Caleb. Caleb, at 85 years old, is going to want to get the biggest, baddest dude in the room and get into a fight. Here's why. Why does he do that? Verse 12. He's going to go, give me Hebron. I think Caleb's request here in verse 12 is an ambitious request. In fact, I think verses 1 to 11 are just setting up verse 12, and I think the whole point of Caleb's story is verse 12. Here's why it's here, because Caleb's going to have a request, and I think his request is one of ambition. Why do I say that? Was Caleb's request inappropriate? I don't think it was at all. Caleb's going to request a town that's within the land or region that his tribe has been uh, allotted. So his request is not inappropriate, and yet I think his request was unnecessary. Caleb did not have to take Hebron. He did not have to take the hardest city. He did not have to take on the biggest giants in the land. And he's going to go right after that. And I think it's ambitious of him. In fact, as I finally walk through the life of Caleb, one of the reasons why I've loved this story is this. That for me, over the last 10 years, I've been asking a question that I've not been able to answer. Until I've really begun to look at the life of Caleb. And the question I've had is this. What does godly ambition look like? As I walked through college, I came to college incredibly driven and incredibly ambitious. I wanted to accomplish a lot. I chose computer engineering because I wanted to make a lot of money. And at that time, that industry was quite lucrative. I wanted to see the money. I also wanted to accomplish a lot of things. I wanted to be influential. I wanted to take over businesses. I wanted to be a leader. I wanted to be a CEO. I wanted to have all the materialistic provisions of life that it offered. And I wanted to go all out and go big or go home. That was what I wanted in college. That's why I came to A&M. But in many regards, as you may suspect, as I walked through college, the Lord began to begin to chisel away at those faulty ambitions. One after another began to go right after those ambitions that were a bit misdirected. And he came right after me, one after another, after another. By the time I got to the end of college, the Lord really and truly brought me to a place that I said, you know what, whatever you would have for my life, so be it. Even if that has to be ministry. <laughs> um, and wherever you would send me, so be it. Even if that has to be gulp, oh gosh, missions. And that's where we went for a couple of years in East Asia from 2005 to 2007. But by the time I got to the end of life, Or by the end of college, sorry. The Lord had really whittled me down. Yeah, definitely not there yet, all right? Uh, But by the time I got to the end of college, the Lord had whittled away at pretty much every misdirected ambition I had for the most part. Uh, And I kind of got to a place, though, that a lot of those ambitions were deconstructed. But the problem I had as I left college and the problem I've had for the last decade is wondering, how in the world do you reconstruct ambition in a godly manner? What does it look like to be ambitious for God? What does it look like to be ambitious for the things of God and what God would have? Because we are going to see in Caleb, I think, is a man that is in a godly way ambitious. So what I want to do is kind of slow down and camp out and, and kind of unpack the story of Caleb in a little bit of a different way. What I want to do for you guys is give you guys what I think are four components of ambition. What I want to do is unpack that and then try to show you what is godly ambition and what is worldly ambition. And looking at those components, how do those two differ? All right. So that's where we're going to go with Caleb. First thing I want you guys to see is, where do you guys see ambition arise? Where do you first see it? I think you first see it by someone's willingness to initiate. Caleb, in verse 12, is going to initiate with Joshua. He approaches Joshua with a request that was not inappropriate but unnecessary. But he takes it on himself to come to Joshua and to make this request. Joshua could have hung back. He could have let leadership just make its decisions and do whatever. But Caleb has a burning desire and he comes up and he approaches Joshua. Even more so, you're going to see not just his willingness to initiate, but I think what you see with ambition is this, a discontentment with the past and the present. Caleb says in verse 12, Now then. (laughs) Caleb is not concerned with where he's been and what he's already accomplished. He is in any way far from being done. Caleb's still pressing forward. In fact, I think you see this not just in Caleb, but you also see this in Paul's life, Philippians chapter 3. Paul says this, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul was not content with where he had been and what he had already accomplished. But he was always pressing forward to find more of God and to see God's kingdom come and be advanced even more. He was never satisfied in a healthy way with what he had of God and what he had seen of God. He always wanted more, and he was always pressing forward, never content with where he had been or even where he was. And that's what I love about Paul. I think you see that even with Caleb. But why does that discontentment manifest? What's driving that? Ultimately, I think what drives that is an ambition, because what you see is the the content of one's discontentment is the object of one's ambition. What you are discontent with often reveals what your ambition is. And so the third thing that you see with ambition is an obsession that drives someone towards something. Ultimately, the problem for many of us is our ambitions are built on things that will never satisfy. And since ambition is a continual discontentment, if it's directed at something that doesn't satisfy, then you have a double whammy of a cycle that just continually spins you out of control because you're continuing to pursue something that's not satisfying. But because you're ambitious about it, you're never content with what you already have, and you're continually pursuing that. What you're going to see from Caleb, though, and what you're going to see from Paul is that they had a different object of their discontentment. And a different object of their pursuit. Particularly they had an obsession with the glory and the purposes of God. You find Paul saying this of himself in Second Corinthians chapter 5. He says, here, here is my ambition. He says, therefore we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul's ambition, that which drove him, that which he was never content with, was to see God exalted, to see him honored, and to please him at every turn. Even more, he says, here's what my ambition is in ministry. Here's what my ambition is occupationally or even in my life purpose. He says, Romans chapter 15, verse 20. And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. The ambition Paul had in ministry, the ambition he had in his apostleship, was to see the gospel of God proclaimed in places that had not heard it. He didn't want to go where it was easy. He didn't want to go where someone had already tilled the soil and made it easy and fruitful. He wanted to go where it was hard, where it was difficult, where it wasn't bearing fruit in any way, shape, or form. He wanted to go where it was difficult. That was his ambition. He wanted to see the name of God proclaimed and the kingdom of God advanced. In many regards, I think sometimes if you and I are completely honest with ourselves, the object of our discontentment has nothing at times to do with the church, the kingdom, or the glory of God. More often than not, our ambitions fall and our senses of discontentment fall on things that are far more trivial. I spend a lot of time frustrated with the amount of closet space in our home. (laughs) I spend a lot of time frustrated with the size of our living room, all right? There are things about our home. There are things that I want to upgrade about our home, and I want to buy a new house, even though we just refinanced a year ago, all right? There are ambitions and things that I'm discontent with that are so short-sighted with what God has in store for our lives. In fact, I ran across a quote this semester from a guy named John Stott, and I think he just nailed me between the eyes, and I think it's a quote that really hits, right? at really where a lot of our ambitions are. This is what he says. He says, the motto of our generation is safety first. Many are looking for a safe job in which they can feather their nests, secure their future, ensure their lives, reduce all risk, and retire on a fat pension. That was me in college. That's exactly what I wanted. And I wasn't going to stop until I got it, and I wasn't going to stop until I had it, and then I could protect it as well. Then he continues on. He says, there's nothing wrong with providing for your future, but this spirit pervades our lives until life becomes soft and padded and all adventure is gone. We are so thickly wrapped in cotton wool that we neither feel the pain of the world nor we hear the word of God. I love that quote. Every time I read that quote, that quote just hits me right between the eyes and just keeps thumping at my heart. (laughs) Because where my ambitions go so often are so trivial, so temporal, and so based on convenience and comfort and materialism. To be perfectly honest with you guys, now that we've bought a house and been for the first time in a house for three years, uh, going into what is going to be a fourth year for me on staff, we're about to be somewhere residentially the longest we've ever been. Now that we have an eight-month-old named Caroline, I also find myself wanting to protect not just our home, our finances, our future as best I can for my wife, for my baby. And so what I find in my life more and more is this continual desire, this continual drive to protect all that I have and maybe get more. (laughs) It was there in college and it's still there for me, all right? And I think in reality, for you and I, as we think about our lives, we have car insurance, we have home insurance, we have life insurance, we have long-term disability insurance, we have all kinds of insurances to pad, protect our livelihood and our future. Because you and I so desperately, and it is our human nature, want to protect and secure all of our life. (laughs) And to protect ourselves from the circumstances of life that you and I can't control. And here's Caleb at 85, though, wandering the wilderness. (laughs) Uh, with not a, head, or a pillow to lay his head on, without a home to protect, with nothing guaranteed of his future and what's happened to him. He's maintained an obsession with the purposes of God. Even more so, why do you think and why do I think he finishes so well? What you're going to see ultimately, I think, is that I think there's two reasons why he's going to finish so well at age 85. First of all, is he so clearly knew the purposes, the promises and the person of God. Five different times through this passage, through this dialogue with Joshua, he's going to mention the word of God. He's going to mention God speaking five different times. Caleb clearly knew the person and the promises of God. He clearly knew what God had for his life, and he was charging headlong after that. And even when he didn't see full fulfillment, all of those things come immediately in his life. Even though he was doing all the right things, playing the right game, he continued to wait on God. Because he knew God's character, and he knew his covenants. He knew his person, and he knew his promises, and he could wait on God because he was so confident of who he was. And he was so confident that he would eventually fulfill what he promised to him. And not only that, not only does he, I think, end so well. Not only does he stay on track because he's so confident of the person and the promises of God. I think he's also stayed on track because he's maintained a singular ambition for the purposes of God. He's going to remain obsessed with God's glory and his kingdom. And as he ends here in verse 12, why does he ask for Hebron? Why does he want Hebron? Does he want to just do the hardest thing so that he looks really good and he shows his self-determination? I don't think so at all, at age 85, I think for 45 years, it has been burning him and sticking in him that it is this place, these fortified cities, these giants that caused the name and the reputation of God to be shamed. It is these giants, it was this town that had caused the people of God to doubt the person and the promises of God. So by the time the door finally opens and he has an opportunity, he wants to go remedy that once and for all. Why? Not just so that he can put a feather on his cap, but what he wants to do and what's been burning him and what's been his obsession is to see that God's glory, his reputation, and his kingdom advanced. He's been wandering around for 45 years, and that's just been burning him to death. By the time he finally has an opportunity, he showed up at the plate with a request to Joshua because he wants to see this thing remedied. At the golden years of his life, he should have been looking for the golden corral, and he should have been looking for the golf course. But Caleb is going to end as ambitiously as you can imagine. What's the difference between godly ambition and worldly ambition? Why does Caleb look so different? I think in those four components of ambition, I think first of all, in the first of willingness to initiate, I think that that which separates godly ambition from worldly ambition is the attitude of that initiative. Does the person come arrogantly or do they come humbly? Caleb comes and he takes initiative, but I think his initiative is one that is humble. He comes under the leadership of Joshua and allows Joshua to decide however he wants It's not an inappropriate request, but it wasn't a necessary request. And Joshua didn't have to honor it, but he does. Caleb continues to come humbly before the Lord. Second of all, I think you see the object of Caleb's discontentment. So it separates godly ambition from worldly ambition. The object of his discontentment was not his residential wandering. The object of his discontentment was the shame and the disrepute that came to the name of God. Third thing I think you see is, in a sense, the motivation of advancement. Worldly ambition has an object that's different, that that is of our discontentment, but it is also pursued with a whole different motivation. Worldly ambition is all about self. It's all about self-exaltation. It's all about self accomplishment for for selfish motives and for self-satisfaction. Godly ambition, though, is not about one's own reputation in any way, shape, or form, but it's all about God's reputation. It's all about His kingdom being advanced. And if that's the case, if that's the obsession, if that's the advancement, then it comes with resources that are incredibly different. You cannot pursue the kingdom of God in and of your own resources. And so what you see of Caleb, he says in verse 12, that in the sense what you're going to see is that his resources were a dependence on the spirit of God. He says, hey, I'll take Hebron if the Lord will allow it to be the case. If the Lord is with me and I know he is with me, then the Lord will be there. In fact, I love, he says, if perhaps. And in this sense, I don't think the perhaps is any kind of wishy-washiness. Uh, when we lived in East Asia for a couple of years, one of the things that always cracked us up was, uh, as East Asians in their second language talked in English, they would often add the phrase, Perhaps, perhaps we will go to dinner. Perhaps we will uh, do this or that. And what we always laughed about was that perhaps actually never meant maybe. <laughs> perhaps was their indirect way of communicating um, clearly something they wanted. <laughs> so we were going to dinner. I don't think Caleb here is in any way wishy-washy, wondering maybe God will be with me. He knows clearly that God will be with him. So he steps forth in dependence, seeing exactly what God will do. In fact, what's fascinating to me is as Caleb ends here is I think he, uh, he gives us a picture in many regards of what godly ambition looks like. For me, I had had misdirected ambitions deconstructed. And I think what Caleb does for me and that I haven't had happen for 10 years and what I hope begins to happen for you this morning is you get a sense of what godly ambition looks like and how godly ambition begins to be reconstructed so that you and I can pursue with wholeheartedness the kingdom, the purposes, and the glory of God. God has called us to something even grander than ourselves and he's called us to be ambitious about it. To not be bashful, to not be hesitant, but to come out with full faithfulness, with full boldness, and with full courage. In fact, I think many regards, how do you and I respond to this? Where do you and I go this morning? Three different things I want to say to you. First is this. I think you and I begin, the starting point for a lot of us is confession of sin. Uh, Lance this morning read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. And he says, let us run with the race that is set before us. Let us run with endurance. And how do we do that? How do we run with endurance? How do we finish well? You don't necessarily see this clearly in Caleb's life. But I think the clear point from Hebrews 12 is that you do that by confessing your sin. There's no way that you and I can continue to carry sin along with us and finish well. Sin will slow us down, and eventually it will weight us down, and eventually we won't be able to continue on. It will wear us out. And so Hebrews says, cast it away, get rid of it, so that it doesn't entangle you as you run. For some of us here, we're at the very beginning of the race. Some of us have been running for quite a long time, and some of us are getting toward the finish line. And for wherever you are, for some of us, though, that we've never even yet begun the race, let me say to you, the starting point for you as well is confession of sin. The reality of life, and as the scriptures have said it, is that you and I have been separated from God because of our sin. We have had ambitions that have gone contrary to what God has for you and I. And they are ambitions that are transgression against Him. And because of that, you and I are hostile enemies of Him. We're separated from Him, but where we begin is at the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at that cross, what we realize is that the Son of God came. He was revealed to us, and He came not just to show us the character, the purposes, and the plan of God, but He came to die on our behalf. And he laid down his life so that you and I could be forgiven and reconciled and brought back into a relationship with us, with him. And that's not where we end, that's where we begin. And what God wants for us is not just to forgive us of our sins and to give us heaven, but he wants what he wants for us is to invite us into a pursuit and into a plan and into a purpose that is so much greater than so many of our ambitions. The second thing I think it challenges us to do is this, that we would also, in a sense, cling to his word. I think Caleb knew the purposes, the promises, and the person of God so well. Why did he know that so well? I think it was was so clear of what God had said and how God had spoken. I want to challenge you guys this morning that you would consider and you would be the kind of people that would cling to the Word of God. Why is that? So I think it's in the Word of God that you have the clearest manifestation of who God is and what God is doing and where God is moving human history. In fact, this week, I'd love to challenge you guys. This week, our summer Bible studies are beginning, and a great way to respond even this morning is to jump into a summer Bible study. Uh, summers for me are probably my most favorite time of year because things are just smaller and it's a lot easier to find community. It's a lot easier to jump into things. So this actual Wednesday morning, uh, Bible studies are beginning. Uh, this Wednesday night, adult Bible studies are beginning as well. Tristy will be doing one for the women. Buck will be doing Psalms for the men and the women. Thursday night, 6.30 to 8.30, college will be doing a study known as That I May Know You. But it's a, a, a walk through the attributes of God and also a sense of where God is moving human history from Genesis to Revelation. So I challenge you guys, jump into a Bible study this summer. Be a great spot to know more of who God is and be a great spot to begin to uh, be challenged with hey, what is God doing and what is God doing with my life and where is He moving human history to? The last thing I challenge us to this morning is that we would check our ambitions. I think the story of Caleb comes here as you get a picture of a man who ends his life with godly ambition. I want to ask you this morning, what is it that drives you? As you think about the end of your life, what do you hope to be true of yourself? Not how do you look, but who do you hope to be? And what are you living for now and what are you pushing forward to in the future? I think the reality of the scriptures is that there is no biblical viewpoint of retirement. Retirement comes in the presence of God. And until then, it is go time. And Caleb is going to be wrapping up and finishing his life in the golden years with picking up a shield and grabbing a sword. He's going to be in the game and he's going to be fighting. And that's what I love about Caleb. What are your ambitions this morning? What is it that's driving you? What are you discontent with? And what do you hope to be true of you? Not just in 10 years, but what do you hope to be true of your life as you wrap it up? What is the purpose of your life and where are you moving? Caleb is going to have an invitation. He's going to maintain an ambition for what God has in store. In many regards, I think the game of golf is such a great parallel because for so many of us in our frustration, we end up getting off the course. Uh, Often my freshman year, I played a ton at the a golf course. And if you know that golf course, after hole nine, you end up back at the clubhouse, which is across the street from the south side dorms that I lived in my freshman year. I cannot tell you how many times my freshman year, after the first front nine, as I'd jump on the tee box at hole 10, sometimes I wouldn't even get to the tee box at hole 10, or I would get to the tee box, hit my tee shot, and then either way walk off the course. <laughs> because there was something that seemed more attractive to me than another nine, another nine holes, another hour and a half of brutal heat and brutal golf. What seemed more attractive to me at the time was the air conditioning, a bed, and the TV, right? There was a lot of things that distracted me and pulled me off the course of golf. I hope for you guys, as you kind of begin to think about your ambitions, you begin to realize that some of the ambitions that pull us away from the purposes of God are the kinds of distractions that can cause you and I have a difficulty on waiting for the Lord. The kinds of distractions that will make it impossible for you and I to finish well. Caleb will have a singular ambition for the purposes and the plan of God. And here's what it gets him. In verses 13 to 15, I'm not going to read it for you, but we're going to see the end of the story as Caleb is going to receive a legacy. He's not just going to begin faithfully, he's not going to just wait patiently, he's not just going to end ambitiously, but he's going to receive a legacy that will last for generations. Interestingly enough, before he gets to Hebron and takes it over and destroys those giants in those fortified cities, it wasn't named Hebron. Evidently, before it became Hebron, it was named after the biggest giant of the land in that city. But by the time he gets done with that big giant and the rest of the giants, the the city will be named something else. In fact, it won't just be for that generation that that from the time that, that Caleb took it to the time that this book was written, for generations that would follow, the land would have rest for more. He finished the task God had for him, and that had an impact from generation to generation, not just in his day. Even more so, another generation will arise that will honor the Lord and will follow the model of Caleb. A man of faithfulness, a man of patience, and a man of ambition. And his impact was not just in his day, but it was in a day that led to generation after generation as generations arose and followed his model. For me, the life of Caleb has been a really joyful one to take a look at. It's also been really challenging. For me, it's really reconstructed what my ambitions ought to be and what I ought to be pursuing. The reality is for you and I, whether we are at the beginning of the race or whether we are halfway through this race or whether we are closing on the end, the reality is it's go time. The reality is a great God has called you and I unlikely heroes to a great task that is so much bigger So much grander, so much more longer lasting than anything that sometimes you and I typically in our trivialness will pursue. I want to ask you this morning, what are you pursuing? What do you hope to land at in the future and what are your ambitions today? Are are they in line with the promises and the purposes of God or are they simply distractions to that? And if that's the case, I would challenge you to really give the Lord an opportunity really to wrestle with your heart. Say, what are you going to live for? The reality is if you're not living for the purposes and the plan and the ambitions of God, you're going to find yourself dissatisfied. And it will be a cycle that you will never break out of because that is the nature of ambition. If your ambition is directed at something that's finite, that in itself will never satisfy. You have to be directed at something that is infinite, that will never leave you high and dry, that is infinitely faithful, that is infinitely unceasing in its love and its compassion and has invited you to something even grander than so much of what you and I drive after. That's my hope and my prayer for you guys. Why don't you pray with me this morning? Father God, we give you great thanks that you have not just forgiveness of our sins, that your Son has not just died on a cross, but that you have invited us to be partakers of the divine nature, that you've invited us to the game of life. I pray for many of us that we would not be spectators watching what you're doing and distracted with other things. I pray that you would give us a singular ambition for your purposes and for your reputation. And for some of us, I pray you give us the courage, to really give your spirit an opportunity to wrestle and examine our hearts, to reveal to, to us what we're discontent with and what's driving us And especially if it's contrary to the things you've invited us to. Father, I pray that you would give us a singular ambition for your glory and for your purposes. That you'd give us a confidence in your person and in your promises. And that you would give us a restoration of our first love. Father, we love you and we give you great thanks for that which you've invited us to be a part of. Father, I pray that you'd give us greater courage and greater faith. To be realizing that you have promised that you could do great things through such shakable vessels. And that even in that, in such shakable vessels, you show your glory even greater. Father, I pray that you would do that with this church, you would do that with our weekends, that you would do that with our weeks and our workplaces and our homes and our families. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. You guys have a great weekend and we'll see you all next week.